One day there was a small plane that was flying. It was a pilot, a boy scout, and the world's smartest man on board, the only three passengers. The plane starts experiencing trouble, and this plane is about to crash. The pilot knows it. The boy scout knows it. The world's smartest man knows it. As they rush to the back door, they begin to realize that there was only two parachutes for three passengers. The world's smartest man grabs one of them, puts it on his back, and says, I have a responsibility to the rest of mankind to save this brain. And he jumps out. Left on board, of course, the Boy Scout and the pilot turn to each other. The pilot says to the Boy Scout, son, I've lived a long life and I've seen many things. Why don't you take the parachute? You go. The Boy Scout turns back to the pilot and says, actually, the world's smartest man just jumped out of the plane with my backpack on. There's two parachutes left. Why don't we both go? Maybe you've met incredibly brilliant people before who can't do very practical little things. Every time I can't fix something in our house and my sons remind me of how practically inept I am, I tell them this is common to a lot of geniuses. (laughs) And rightfully so, they don't believe me. John Ortberg tells that joke and that story at the beginning of his book, No Doubt, K-N-O-W, Doubt. In the beginning of a conversation that starts to convince his readers, you can't think your way to life. You can be the world's smartest man, but you can't think yourself into living one more day than anybody else. You can't think your way into life, and you can't think your way to God. There's a lot of brilliant people in this room. There's a lot of PhDs in this school. You can't think your way to God. We can think a lot of great thoughts about God. We are called to engage our love of God with our mind, and many of us here are very good at doing just that. Some of us do that to a fault. We're good at loving God with our mind, but we have a hard time loving the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and strength along with it. I often notice that those are the primary critiques between the different traditions within the Christian community. Reformed people will point out the charismatics and say, that's, that's, that's emotionalism. That's just getting carried away with feelings. And the charismatics will turn and talk to people like the frozen chosen reformed and tell us, lucky for you, the dead in Christ will rise first. <laughs> and they point out the fact that we are a whole being. And we are called to love God with all that we are. And a great disciple of Christ is not going to just simply ride the crutch of one aspect of their being, but will find the lordship of Christ taking over the the whole of their being, the totality of everything that they are. One of the reasons we wanted to spend time this semester looking through the book book of Psalms was to see that the Psalms encapture the whole range of human emotion. There are psalms like the one we're going to read through today in Psalm 96, one of these kingship of Yahweh psalms that are just absolute adoration and praise and just adorning God from start to finish. There are other psalms where people cry out and lament because there doesn't seem to be a positive ending to the place or the season that they are at. There are times in the Psalms where people are angry at God himself and they're saying, I've seen you reveal yourself. You say you are this, but I don't see this right now. 
Can I even believe you or trust in your character anymore? The Psalms give us permission to experience the whole range of who we are when we come before God. To give us an authenticity in worship. There are some of you in this room today who are asking incredible questions of God right now. Sometimes we doubt his existence. Sometimes we doubt his goodness. Sometimes we doubt the historicity of the Bible. And so often within the Christian community we tell one another that you can't have doubts and you can't think like that. But what the Psalms do for us is they open up the possibility, and not only the possibility, but the invitation of a father who says, come to me no matter what you're feeling. I want my children to come before me, to sit on my lap, and to be in my presence when they're angry at the world, when they're confused, and on the days when they absolutely love me. How much more so does a perfect father have the ability to to invite his children in and say, just come and be with me. And worship does this for us. It's got the whole range. Everything you will feel today finds its place in a home in the Psalms. Everything that the distinct differences within this community in this room. If I were to ask each of you, how is your day going, and have you all answer out loud, there would be a wide range, as long as we were being honest. But that's what we're supposed to do. In community and before God, learn to be completely vulnerable and honest in where we are. There's a whole other level of vulnerability that gets hit in this psalm. I want to read it first and then talk to you about the historical context in which it was written. Psalm 96. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Praise His name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Ascribe to the Lord, all you families of nations. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to His name. Bring an offering and come into His courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of His holiness. Tremble before Him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound in all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Let all creation rejoice before the Lord, for He comes. He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and all the peoples in His faithfulness. King David commissioned Psalm 96, after he had danced before the ark and brought it into Jerusalem, after a great victory and a new level of peace was brought to Israel, now he wants a home for the ark of the Lord. And he brings it in and he's so excited. He gives of his wealth to everybody who is present. And then he commissions this worship, this absolute adoration and falling before God. He's falling over himself trying to find words to describe how great and how good God is. And there are moments where these are the psalms that are coming out of our hearts. 
Psalm 96, 97, 98, 99, 93, 47. These are referred to often as the kingship of Yahweh psalms. The recognition that there is no God. There was, there was other coronation psalms. Psalms that were sung when a king would come in and celebrate his new arrival on the throne. But these are the kingship of Yahweh psalms. The kind of psalms that David wanted Israel to sing. Not to him as a king, but to the only king of Israel. The only authority that he wanted within his life. It's a kingship of Yahweh type of psalm. And you'll remember, of course, if you know the story well from 1 Chronicles 16, that David is so excited about what is happening that he strips all the way down to to a linen ephod, a priestly undergarment, his underwear, as the king of the country and dances before the ark the whole way in to Jerusalem. He danced with all his might. That's what it says. I don't know if I've ever once danced with all my might. Not that anyone would want to see that, but I don't know if I've ever even done it. The Amor team that I was with um, over Christmas break, we were in Liberia, we went to a New Year's Eve service. And one of the highlights for us during that trip was the pastor coming up front beforehand at 9 o'clock on New Year's Eve and saying before everybody in the church, right, that we need to give great thanks today for none of you have died It was such a simple thing to say, but he was giving thanks for the fact that Ebola had come and all these terrible things had come and everybody had known people who had died, but you have a voice left. And so you should raise it in praise. And for three hours we worshipped and when the clock struck midnight, a dance party broke out and nobody was trying to pick anybody up. Nobody was consuming adult beverages. It was just flat out dancing for the Lord. And I watched... And I will be witness, a bunch of Dort College Reform kids get up and actually dance in church. It was incredible. (laughs) Their moves weren't incredible. (laughs) But it was incredible. There was a little part of me here in the last song that kind of wanted to get up and start running around and doing this, right? Do you ever have those instances where your heart is dancing inside in worship, even though your, your body is liturgically in order? And we want to just cut loose. There's something about us that says, there's a part of me right now that is loving God with all that I am. But there's like this schizophrenic disconnect between my heart and my mind. Now please don't misunderstand me. I'm not standing in a Christian academic institution arguing for anti-intellectualism. The command is to love God with all that we are. And each one of us needs to ask ourselves, which one do we lean on a little bit more. Some of us, it's very easy to love the Lord with our mind. Some of us, it's very easy to love the Lord with our soul. But God is actually inviting you to love him with all that you are. And this moment that's happening in Israel's history when David commissions this psalm, it calls for a new song. Seven times in the Old Testament, two times in the New Testament, the Bible talks about the need for the writing of a new song. What is that all about? It's not a line to be employed in worship war conversations. That's not what it's about. In each of those instances, typically something so momentous has happened. 
Already in the Old Testament first five books, right, Israel was commanded to come back before God in various forms of worship. And they had psalms for these. They had songs for these. So much of the Psalter is made up of these historical songs that Israel would sing when they would come back for the festivals. We're going to look at some of the psalms of ascent later on in this series. It's the songs that they would sing as they're climbing the steps back into the temple, back into Jerusalem, recalling the historic movements where God had done great things. But every once in a while, God does something new. And David realizes that this is a new moment in history. What God is doing in this moment was new. There wasn't a song already in existence to describe what was taking place. It needed a new song. I think that this is why God has given us the gift of art and creativity. I think every time you want to write a new poem, every time you want to write a new song, every time a new piece of art is going to burst out of you like an alien because it's just got to go and you have to express something, is part of the image bearing of God. When he sat there that day, breathed life and spoke and worlds came, that's the creativity of God and that's the image of God in you. Sometimes art has the greater ability to tell truth than fact does and it's why so much of this book is in the genre of poetry and song. Because it's part of who we are. Some of you need a new song. You need to acknowledge that there is a new season of work that God is doing within you. That other things have already happened. You've got songs to describe those. We have songs to describe Advent season. We have songs for, for Lent, for Epiphany, for Easter, for Good Friday, for all these days in the liturgical calendar. But what would it look like for you to have a new song? And I don't even mean that literally. Like, maybe for you it's a new posture in worship, somewhere you've never been before. Maybe it's to cut loose and just simply acknowledge the disconnect between the way you're thinking and the way that you're feeling. And then the whole other front that we often put on for other people to see. What if it's just simply a new song about a greater and more consistent congruity between what you feel and what you say and who you are? What if it's about a dedication for a new season in life? What if it's about a sin that needs to be left behind and you want to lay that before God and some walls need to come down and for you this is a turning point? You see, because a God who specializes in resurrection gives us reason to write new songs all the time. That's what it's talking about when his mercies are new every morning. His every day calls for some sort of new song to come from his people because God is going to do something today that he has not done in the past. God has another part of your life yet that he wants that you've not given over. God has more people who are yet to confess his name that haven't done so yet. And that calls for a new song. The psalmists acknowledge every time something momentous happens, give me a new song. Pen something new. And I know that sometimes for us this is hard. Finding a language of authentic um, just praise and adoration is not something we've typically done. But worship is a command. Praise is a command. John and I were talking this morning about this this series of conversations that we often have with with students or people wrestling in in their devotional life saying, "I, I don't feel like loving God right now, or I don't feel like it, so it feels like I would be a hypocrite if I went to church or I went to a place of worship. But I think one of the reasons God invited us always to come forward is because in that space he reveals himself to us. Creating disciplines in our Christian walk are to put ourselves in the place where God can do something new. 
It's hard to pen a new song when we haven't even put ourselves in the place for God to do a new work. We need to open ourselves up. And this is what the disciplines are for. If you want to change something in your life, if you're feeling the Spirit tugging at you to take you somewhere where you haven't been, I would encourage you to figure out the next discipline, the next way to put yourself in front of God's work. Maybe he wants to do something new in you. But praise is a weird idea, isn't it? I read C.S. Lewis in preparation for this message this week, and he was talking about that the greatest struggle he had when he first became a believer was the notion of praise. He's like, I get why God would want gratitude. I get why God would want obedience. I even get why God would want fear, but I don't get this praise thing. Because anybody I've ever met who ever wanted praise was trying to make up for some sort of insecurity. He said, isn't it weird that God is telling us all the time, come, come tell me how good I am, come tell me how great I am. Like that's what insecure dictators do, he said. So why? And he wrestled with this for some time. Why would God ask this of us? What is it that he needs? Is there any song that I can sing that is going to make God be more God by the time we wrap that one up? C.S. Lewis's conclusion is that there isn't. And so even the instruction of praise, even that is not our gift back to God. It is God's gift to his people. Come back before me and worship with all of your brothers and sisters and I will show you something new of who I am again. Come back to this place and I will give you more of me. God doesn't ask us to praise so that we can give him more of us. God asks us to praise first and foremost so he can give himself more of himself to us. Only the genius of God can take things that would first sound like instruction and turn them into somehow gifts and another invitation. And this is what he's doing. And this is why he wants us to come before him regardless of whether you feel inconsistent or whether you feel like you're in a place of struggle or maybe even doubting his existence. Some of the greatest teachers of our faith have taught us that this is the space. This is the time. You're allowed to come with questions before God. And doubt and faith are not opposites, but they belong together. And if you've ever asked questions but have been too afraid to voice them out loud, I want you to know that you are invited by your God to do so, and the psalmists teach us as much. C.S. Lewis taught us that this is where he found the answers to his struggle. If you can put the Ortberg quote up for me in the next slide. In that book, No Doubt, John Ortberg says it like this, when we take seriously the reality of faith and doubt, the most important word in the phrase is the one in the middle. And. These belong together. They go together. You don't have to apologize for your doubts. God actually uses doubts to build faith. Keep in mind the God who's inviting you to do this actually used death to create life. So he's kind of good at this sort of thing. You don't have to be afraid of your doubts. They're not an indicator that you're failing. They're an indicator, maybe, just maybe, that things are actually going right. Another popular writer and voice of our time, Rob Bell, says it like this. Can you go to the next one for me? For many people, the opposite of faith is doubt. The goal, then, within this understanding is to eliminate doubt. But faith and doubt aren't opposites. Doubt is often a sign that your faith has a pulse, that you're owning your path, engaged, thinking, feeling, that your heart is alive and well and exploring and searching. Faith and doubt aren't opposites. 
They are, it turns out, excellent dance partners. People who have gone through great struggle and sorrow in life have taught us this much, that it's in the places of doubt and in the places of hardship where God reveals himself to us. And so the next time you have a really bad day, maybe the answer isn't a prayer that asks God to take our struggle away, but asking God to reveal himself to us in this in a new way. And this is why we get to come before him authentically and honestly in everything. Eli Wiesel, one of the great survivors of concentration camps, he put it like this, and I, I love this. It's probably my favorite one. If you go to the next... My tradition teaches that no heart is as whole as a broken heart. And I would say that no faith is as solid as a wounded faith. Anybody finding encouragement from this? Good, good. We got a charismatic in the house, people. That's fantastic. All right. We are diversifying. Diversify your faith. Go somewhere you haven't been. Sing a little louder and a little more recklessly than you have in the past. Do something artistic, even if you don't think it's very good. Because here's the great deal. None of us are ever, as little children, going to bring something so good before God that he's going to put it up on the big fridge in heaven and be like, yes, they got an A. (laughs) Because everything that you do is just simply a reflection of the fact that God has put himself within you. And so we offer this back in praise. What part of you has yet to surrender to the lordship of God and worship? What part of your doubt needs a voice so you can come to terms with the honestly inside of you what you're wrestling with? These great teachers of the faith are telling us it's okay to ask. I want to encourage you and challenge you. Go somewhere new. I'm going to ask the band to come back up. We're going to sing a song in closing, and, and, and maybe this is just simply an opportunity for you to find a posture in worship you haven't found before. Maybe that's metaphorical, and maybe it's literal. Maybe it's inspiring you to make some sort of commitment between you and God, that there's something that you need to do to express and come in a new level of vulnerability. If Israel's leader could dance in his underwear, and his wife say, everybody will mock you, And he closes in response saying what? As for these servant girls you talk about, I will be lifted up in their eyes and I will become even more undignified than this. The great King David trades in dignity for reckless worship. He teaches us wisdom and has a life of the mind in love with the Lord, but a song of his heart to match. Can we learn to do the same and love our God with all of our heart and soul, and mind, and strength. For he gave you all of them to give him glory.